Well, hey, you guys, it's uh, Pastor Ron here with Pastor Trey and Pastor Zach, Dr. Zach, and uh, Dr. Pastor Zach. It's a, <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, so you we've just been, call me Zach. Yeah. <laughs> we've been doing a, uh, a worldview uh, series for parents, taking parents deeper into places that their students have already gone. And we are now taking kind of a one-off episode for further study. Uh, for Connection Point on Revelation, because we just wrapped a series uh, in uh, our weekend services for adults uh, on uh, the story of the universe. We tracked Jesus as the central figure of all eternity. We looked at Jesus as creator. We tracked Jesus through the Old Testament. We tracked Jesus all the way through the New Testament, and then capped it off with uh, a study in one message on Revelation, which was um, <laughs> not the easiest thing. And so we felt like there's a little bit of room uh, to have a little bit more of a conversation about what we uh, talked about this last weekend on Revelation. So if you're looking for a little bit of a conversation, a little bit more tools and handles and things to help you in your own study of Revelation, then you're in the right place for this one-off uh, one-off episode podcast uh, with Zach and Trey. Uh, so I've got both of you here, and uh, this time, instead of me asking the questions, you're going to fire the questions, and, um, and then if you've got any thoughts too, feel free to weigh in. But in uh, other words, guys, go ahead, fire away. All right. So as you said, it was a pretty dense message this weekend, a lot uh, packed in there, uh, trying to get through all of Revelation in one dose. Uh, But you gave us an overview and started with a word about Revelation being apocalyptic literature. Uh, Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So um, apocalyptic literature is such a unique genre of literature and like all the different genres of literature in the Bible that each come with like different interpretive uh, rules and things to help you understand what's going on there. But apocalyptic literature in general, biblical or non-biblical, isn't very common for most of us. And so there's a lot of fear that comes with, uh, am I going to understand it? There's fear about... uh, uh, all the different uh, graphic, weird images and symbols that are involved. There can be fear with controversy because everybody's got a different interpretation or viewpoint or opinion uh, about what these things mean. And so um, it's not uncommon, I guess is what I'm saying, to be unfamiliar with apocalyptic literature. But I did say that being unfamiliar with apocalyptic literature is kind of like, and trying to study Revelation, is kind of like being unfamiliar with stocks and bonds and trying to make sense of the Dow Jones report. You know, it's just a very difficult sort of thing. Um, but we just tried to take a little bit of the the uh, edge off. Apocalyptic just means revealed or uncovered. And so it doesn't have to necessarily mean something uh, disastrous or even mysterious, but it is something that has been revealed. In this case, this is a revelation uh, that has been revealed by God to his disciple uh, John, and it was for the benefit of all of us. Um, Apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature and a revelation that's mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing kind of a transcendent sort of reality. It's intended to present earthly circumstances in light of uh, supernatural world of the future and to influence both the understanding and the behavior of the audience by means of divine authority. Now, with that sort of literature, uh, there comes a lot of uh, symbols and imagery tied in with uh, prophecy oftentimes predicting disaster, end-of-the-world destruction, and a lot of bizarre imagery that way. Uh, There's heavy symbolism used throughout apocalyptic literature. Uh, Both biblical and non-biblical apocalyptic literature symbols are an important means of conveying the message, and uh, that's the reason why there are a lot of metaphors used rather than just literal uh, terms. This kind of follows a little bit of the the uh, Eastern thought. So the Bible was written in Eastern thought as opposed to Greek and Western thought. 
Our Greek and Western thought tends to think orderly, logical, fragmented, individual. We tend to look after meaning and purpose. We're so influenced by Western thought here today. But Eastern thought embraced uh, truth, maybe even more than meaning or purpose, um, and took a holistic approach and maybe a collective approach to considering things. Um, Eastern thought didn't have any trouble, for example, with like two seemingly opposite truths coexisting, uh, where Western thought we hate that, you know. But the Bible's filled with a ton of these things that at face value seem mysterious or odd or even opposite. So you've got God's three, but he's one. We are sinners, but we're saints. Jesus came full of grace and truth. We hear that and go, oh, gosh, how could that be? It's the both and. And and they would just hear that and go, yeah, whatever, that's okay. And so we're just coming at it from different angles. Um, it's a little bit like the difference between reading uh, a map and finding the step-by-step directions versus trying to interpret a piece of art. Uh, it's a whole different it's a different ball game. Um, kind of interesting, though, most writing of apocalyptic type, it's anonymous and vague in whom it addresses. But um, in the case of John and Revelation, the writer explicitly identifies himself. He directs the message to a particular people and then writes many centuries before the fulfillment actually occurred, rather than it being like a subversive message from a fictional prophet of the past. And so um, that tells you it, this one's set apart in just a little bit different way than uh, just actual, just any sort of apocalyptic uh, literature. The other thing is when it comes to apocalyptic literature, uh, this book of the Bible in particular, Revelation was meant to be a blessing. And Revelation starts and ends with a blessing. In chapter 1, verse 3, there's a blessing to those who teach it, those who receive it and listen to it and obey what is inside. And then it's echoed in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, the same sort of blessing. And so for those of you that maybe have a bit of a fear when it comes to reading apocalyptic literature and especially Revelation, just remember from God's perspective, this was meant to be a blessing to uh, those who uh, both try to teach it as well as, uh, as read it. Yeah, that's great, and emphasizing how there there's so many different genres in, yeah. in the Bible, and being able to appreciate some of the the distinct qualities of a certain genre is just just really important, and and it of course is a blessing, but also does lead to so much of the the controversy when there's so much symbolism, and someone will wonder, is this should I take this more literally? Should I take this more symbolically? Apocalyptic has a lot of uh, cyclical. Yes. elements to it often it isn't just linear going chronologically all the way through so christians will that leads to debate about how do i read revelation is do i read it all the way through is this like an unfolding drama from beginning to end and others will say no there's there's cycles happening here right where it's repeated um so that that does add to the challenge it really does and that cyclical sort of thinking is is a lot more associated with eastern mm-hmm. thought than yep. western that's a lot more progress process oriented so yeah that's great. And I love what you said, just as a whole, Revelation should be seen as a, as a blessing. Mm. And I've talked to people who are very scared or nervous about Revelation. And and in talking with them, I'm like, are you a follower of Jesus? It, it, if you are, then look at what John says at the end of the book. Like, come, Lord <laughs> Jesus, come. Like, come quickly. Yeah. And this is something that we should eagerly be looking forward to the return of Jesus um, and uh, if you're a believer, it shouldn't be a cause for fear, but a cause for hope, really, um, should be the root kind of feeling that it invokes in you. Right. Um, and uh, this is awesome. I'm sure lots of people are jealous of Zach and I right now uh, because we get to ask you questions after you speak <laughs> a sermon. Um, I, uh, lots of people would wish uh, they, they could be in this position right now, but it's us, so I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, something you said that just... Uh, was a, a strong uh, statement was that there might be people who are more fanatic about prophecy but not Jesus. Mm. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Can you elaborate? Yeah, well, one, I mean, we see it. It's a little bit of the spectrum of what you just talked about. For, for every person that's on the one end of the spectrum with Revelation that is afraid of it, freaked out by it, avoids it like the plague, you know, or 
is kind of meh, I don't care, so I'm not going to read it. There are some on the other end of the spectrum that maybe have a, a what I would call maybe an unhealthy obsession with uh, with revelation, with prophecy, with end times uh, events. I would just say that if we're more caught up in the prophecy than in Jesus, we're already on the wrong foot. We're off to the wrong direction. Now, if your study of prophecy, revelation, uh, leads you to a more intimate relationship with Jesus, if it's cultivating more of your following and discipleship of him, then fantastic. But it's so easy for us to get hung up on the the thing rather than what the thing is pointing to. Mm-hmm. Um, we see that with, uh, you know, blessings. It's so much easier to get preoccupied with the blessing rather than the one who is giving the blessing, get hung up on the gift that we might get rather than the giver of the gift. And um, that's kind of common for a lot of us. And so it's just a quick checkpoint. Let's make sure that when we do, if we do get what what I'd say is fanatic, um, then just make sure that your like industrious study and pursuit of knowledge surrounding prophecy uh, leads you to a deeper relationship with Jesus and it doesn't just end in some sort of um, mindset that leaves you only trying to decode a prophecy chart uh, so that you can be smarter or uh, better than somebody else. You could get so preoccupied that you might actually miss Jesus, which is probably not why you started in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, and it's important to have grace for people yeah. <laughs> who might disagree with you yes. on how to interpret some of that, which is is always a concern. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, well, some of Revelation's structure gives us some helpful hints to what's going on. And can you walk us through some of the elements that might help us understand Revelation better? Yeah, so... I'm not going to give a big, huge, vast structure, um, but just a couple of things to to keep in mind. One is Revelation begins and ends with a very clear picture of Jesus as our divine king. And so if you get lost in the middle, how it starts is with Jesus as a divine king. John turns around and sees this tremendous vision of the divine Jesus. And and this is the John who was leaned back against Jesus' chest. So he knew Jesus very intimately as a human being and as friend, but was aware that he was also God. But now when he turns around, this is not like, oh, let me go rush up and put my head on your chest. This is my buddy. This is that divine Jesus in his glory, eyes blazing like fire, hair white like wool, feet glowing like bronze in a furnace. And John's reaction is to fall at his feet as though he were dead. And so Jesus's divine king is really key. That's how it starts. How it ends is the same way. Jesus comes uh, full circle uh, back to the cycle and uh, reiterates, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last. Like I am the living one. And, um, and he reigns as king. Now, uh, throughout then in between the start and the end, we see how the coming king is going to establish his kingdom in in full. So this is a little bit like um, uh, our presidential election process, you know. So in an election year, we will um, we will vote for and elect the president in November, right? But then he doesn't take office until January. Now this isn't a perfect analogy. But there's a sense in which now Jesus has already defeated Satan at the cross. Um, He is already king Mm -hmm. of the world, seated at the right hand of the Father. However, um, his reign is disputed, and a lot of his subjects are like living in rebellion. Now, Revelation tells a story of him now as king, king here where he's going to take his place of rule and uh, the rebellion will end and the disputes will end and he will just be a king. And so Revelation is kind of the process of that kingdom come in the, the full scope. So 
keeping that in mind, just kind of give a big zoomed out picture of Jesus is our king. He already is. The full scope of what he intends to do is going to be fleshed out uh, in, in Revelation. Two mindsets, though, that I just encourage you to read through Revelation with. One is just an understanding of two things. One would be um, Revelation paints a really graphic picture of just how bad humanity will get and what we are capable of if the hand of God is lifted, if the Holy Spirit just moves out of the way, if we as human beings are completely unrestrained, where we go is not a good place. It is vile and disgusting in anywhere but a godly direction. That's where we're headed. And and in tandem, then, that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants more ground, more of his kingdom built, less of God's. So keeping that in mind will help us understand like, just really how bad humanity is, how sinful and broken we are, how what we would choose, but also what we're subjected to being influenced by with regard to the enemy. And then uh, the second thing I'd keep in mind when you read, though, through Revelation, which I think is missed, is just how gracious and long-suffering Jesus is. Keeping that in mind as you read Revelation is kind of refreshing because for all the judgments that are going to get poured out, there's still an awful lot of the grace of Jesus. There's still salvations that take place even during the tribulation. And so regardless of what you believe about when the rapture of the church happens, um, there are salvation to those who are still turning to Jesus. There's still hard hearts uh, with regard to the judgments that come. That doesn't seem to affect people that are prone to be hard-hearted. But a couple of unique cases where in particular, we'll talk about later, the two witnesses lay down their lives and are brought back uh, to life. They're resurrected. There's something about people seeing persecuted ones lay down their lives and be brought back to death that is more compelling to lead to repentance of people, which is kind of that odd mercy triumphs over judgment sort of thing um, that for all the judgment that is in Revelation, there's still a lot of mercy. There's still a lot of grace. The salvation is still present. Yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of people will say that the Old Testament God seems like this wrathful, angry God, and then the God of the New Testament is sort of this, you know, the God of Jesus, just so nice and forgiving and loving, and and you don't see the wrath, but really you see the wrath of God against sin and his, his holiness, his holy judgment against sin in the Old Testament and the New, and you see the love of God in the Old Testament and yes. the New as well, and you see that in Revelation as well. There's always this balance yep. uh, that you see. And that's that's so true. And, and to piggyback on that, the other key that I would give that is probably the most important key to understanding Revelation um, would be the better that you and I understand the Old Testament, the better we will interpret Revelation. Yeah. And Revelation as a book, as you guys know, has more Old Testament references in it than any other New Testament book. And so I think for first century readers, they would have heard this right out of the gates and been able to connect dots a lot better than we do. Um, mostly because of their proximity to and familiarity with the Old Testament. So it's really key. I would recommend reading the book of Daniel. I would recommend reading Ezekiel. I'd recommend reading Isaiah. I'd recommend reading Zechariah and Zephaniah. There are so many allusions and visuals and pictures that actually get recalled in the book of Revelation that, uh, oh, here's the beast. Oh, here's a dragon. Oh, here's this. So the four horsemen in Revelation 6, well, that's actually from Zechariah. The bowls of, of wrath, that's straight from the plagues in Exodus. The beast rising out of the sea first appears in Daniel. The dragon, introduced way back actually in Genesis chapter 3, Satan makes his appearance there. And so, so having a solid understanding of the Old Testament is really the key to understanding Revelation, which is probably why most of us are kind of lousy at understanding Revelation, <laughs> yeah. because we don't also understand the Old Testament that well. So um, they would have been a lot better equipped to it because what they would have had as the scriptures at that time would have been primarily the Old Old Testament. Mm. And that's so good. The Bible calls that that process meditation. Like you're mm. meditating on scripture. You're chewing it slowly over and over again. 
rereading passages. You don't just read the Bible once through and it's not like a novel and you understand the story right away. Like right. you read it over and over, you ponder it, think on it, talk about it, discuss it, yeah. hear preaching on it. It's it's a meant to be read on your own and then in community. And so yes. through that process of processing through scripture over and over again, you start seeing those hyperlinks mm. that are attached to other parts of scripture. Um, and so that's that's a great uh, reminder that the better we know the rest of the Bible, the more sense we're going to make out of uh, Revelation. Right. Um, so it sounds like Jesus is the main character of the book of Revelation, but uh, my English teacher in high school always said, you know, if you're trying to understand something really well, jot down the main characters, you know, on the cover of the book yeah. as you're reading. So could you give us a, just a quick overview uh, who are the kind of key players throughout the book of Revelation? Right. And this was just to try to give a little bit of some almost like the Cliff's Notes, you know, because I think there's between what the symbols are and the events that take place, the only other category that can be really confusing is who are these people and and are they just symbols or uh, I don't see the word antichrist in my book of revelation so who is he and how do we know who he is and whatnot and so this is a little bit of a cheat sheet um with regard to that um and we can um we can go into more depth later when we do more teaching on this but just a quick flyby on some of the key players um first i draw attention to the dragon the beast and the false prophet the false prophet is referred to us as a second beast but the dragon keep in mind, is Satan. We're not going to belabor that, but he is um, incredibly powerful and he is orchestrating uh, all of the evil that we see going on here. So when you see the dragon, you're thinking Satan, the devil. When you see the beast, that is uh, the Antichrist, and he rises to power during the tribulation period. It seems for the first half of the tribulation. He's uh, allowed to have a certain amount of authority and influence over the nations, um, but uh, in primarily a political sense, about halfway through the tribulation, who the Antichrist is, is revealed. So people miss who he is at the beginning, and then uh, in the back half of the tribulation, it becomes very clear who he actually is. Um, but he his role is predominantly in the political realm to get people to ultimately worship him. Um, he has a number associated with him, which is 666. We don't know a ton. I don't know a ton about the details of that number. Um, but uh, if the number seven has uh, a meaning biblically toward perfection, um, then obviously six would be off of that and anything but perfection. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, lore and ideas about what this means. You know, um, you go back to Nero Caesar in the first century because there was a lot of persecution going on. Um, Caesar was responsible for killing a lot of uh, believers. And so they, their idea of future things would have been different than what we have as an idea about future things. Um, Caesar, Nero Caesar, in the Greek alphabet, each letter has a numeric value. And so oddly, if you total Nero Caesar's name, it totals 666, which has led people to uh, an interpretation that he was somehow the Antichrist and which resets the timeline on this whole thing. But it's uh, you can see where people go off the charts kind of trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. What we do know is uh, that he will force people to take this particular mark. And if you don't, you will not be able to buy or sell. And uh, which would obviously lead to a whole bunch of other issues. Um, that mark is an anti-Shema sort of thing. The Shema at a Deuteronomy, a prayer of the Jewish people, um, and a beautiful prayer. And uh, this call to put uh, the name of the Lord on their foreheads. You, The beast would call people to put his number on their foreheads or their hands. And so it's really just this like complete swap out for being identified with God. Rather, uh, he would have us identify with, with him. The false prophet or other beast uh, is a little more winsome 
and uh, and operates primarily in a religious realm, but for the same purposes of getting people to worship the beast and in turn the the dragon, and um, and so the dragon you could think of as as Satan, anti God. The beast is the antichrist. The false prophet, because of the religious affiliation, could be thought of as anti-spirit. And in that regard, the, these three become a really odd, icky inverse of the Trinity and a subversion of it and, and a, the evil in all regards, pointing to the worship and allegiance to uh, Satan. Thankfully, ultimately, uh, God casts the beast and the false prophet out of the equation first, and then will eventually uh, cast Satan, the dragon, into the same uh, demise. Um, there's a woman uh, that's referred to in Revelation chapter 12, if you're reading through that. Um, there's debate on all these things. I believe that the woman of Revelation 12 is referring to uh, Israel. Um, the 144,000, while that's a number of people, um, that is a key player that can be confusing, and there are other religions that take this and run a whole different direction and say, you know, this is the the the, the exact number of people that will be in heaven, and only these 144 will be in heaven. That doesn't appear biblical to me in Revelation or anywhere else, for that matter. Um, this is also very debated. Um, I happen to believe the 144,000 are Jewish people who have turned to Christ. I believe that they have a specific mission um, that actually has to do with a lot with evangelism during the tribulation period. Um, they come from the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. There are other people that think that 12 is a number of completion uh, times the 12 tribes, that this is just a picture of the church because what John sees in the Revelation right after he hears, he hears about the God sealing uh, these 144,000. But then immediately what he sees after is a vast crowd of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation who are under the Lamb. And so whether this is a specific to the Jewish people who have turned to Christ or uh, representative of all the church, we know that they have an important uh, mission uh, during this tribulation period. Um, the two witnesses. There are two witnesses that are referenced uh, midway through Revelation, and uh, these witnesses are either literal uh, or maybe figurative to churches. So the two witnesses, some people believe, are either um, Moses and Elijah or Enoch and Elijah, and uh, they are unable to do miraculous deeds. These are the ones that are put to death before others, and then they are raised back to life, and that has a significant impact on the witnesses of that. Um, they're referred to, though, as lampstands, and because in uh, Revelation 2, the, the churches are referred to as lampstands, there's a good reason to think maybe these two witnesses aren't necessarily just two individuals, but rather maybe... Uh, two churches or represented churches that maybe take on the ethos or the ethic of a Moses or Elijah. And uh, it's their willing to suffer for persecution and lay down their lives and be brought back that causes this uh, actually mass turn to, to Christ. So that's a flyby. Like I said, you two may even have different opinions on these things, different thoughts about it. Um, but then lastly, I would just say that the lamb, the lamb is the main character, the key player. And um, it's interesting because at the beginning in the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5, they're rolling out the scrolls of judgment and they're wondering who can open this scroll. And what, what John hears, again, what he hears is that the Lion of Judah can open the scroll. And that's obviously a reference to Jesus. Then what he sees immediately following is the slain lamb coming. And that's also Jesus. So there we get Jesus, both the Lion and the Lamb. He is the King of Kings and the Ruler and the Lord. He's also the one who came in humanity and laid down his life as a sacrificial lamb for us. And uh, so anytime you see the lamb there, he's the main character. He's where our focal point should 
should be. Oh, very good. Thanks for uh, surveying that for us. Could you walk us through maybe a quick overview of the events in Revelation and, and what's debated about them? Yeah, so I'll go quickly, guys, because this one, you know, we could get bogged down in uh, forever. Um, what I will say is about what I'm what I'm about to share is um, very much debated. Um, uh, all the things that we're we're studying in Revelation and that we're talking about so far, there are different perspectives, different viewpoints. It is very much debated. We're not going to unpack which one. Uh, we even necessarily personally believe or why you would choose one or the other. I'd rather just give a flyby and an overview, let you know that there are a handful of different schools of thought and grouping on it. But these uh, th- these events that I'll list out, they are debated, and they are debated in their timing, how long some of these take place. They are debated in the order that they take place in. They're even debated on whether these things are figurative or literal. And that has to do with the symbols, it has to do with the actual events themselves. If you take a future-looking view, then obviously then um, this could be a mixture of figurative and literal. If uh, you're more preterist, looking backward, that this has already been fulfilled, then obviously a lot of more of this is figurative or you believe it's already taken place. But with that said, um, here are some of the elements here. Revelation 1 starts with Jesus as the divine king. So that's a great place to start. Honestly, you guys, that's probably all we need to remember and know when it comes to relation. It, this whole revelation is Jesus is king. That's, that's key. Um, Revelation 2 and 3, we get the letters to the churches, and they were literal churches uh, that Jesus uh, was addressing. They're also representative of the types of things, good and bad, that churches throughout the ages would um, wrestle with. It made me wonder if Jesus were going to write a letter to Connection Point. What would he praise us for? But also, what might he admonish us on or encourage us uh, to do differently? Uh, Revelation 4 and 5, we get the throne room of God. This is where the scroll comes, and the Lamb is the one who can uh, unseal, unlock, and unravel the scroll uh, from which these judgments will will pour forth. Then you get Revelation 6 through 19. Now, Revelation is only 22 chapters, and so the vast majority, 6 through 19, is all the tribulation. And why I think that's helpful just as an overview is if you're going to get lost, bogged down, confused anywhere, it's in this portion. And just to keep in mind that if you're anywhere between 6 and 19, you're in the tribulation, you're in a seven-year period where we don't want to be here. And depending on your perspective on whether we will be here or not, it is an awful season of judgment where things go from... Uh, bad to worse. We've already talked a little bit about some of that, but in that seven-year period, um, about halfway through, um, there's already bad stuff going on. It goes from bad to worse in the the second half as these judgments keep uh, coming out. It's right about when um, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are fully revealed who they are, uh, the mass persecution, cosmic disturbances, you name it, take over. And the tribulation, that seven-year period, culminates in uh, the Battle of Armageddon and uh, the second coming of Christ, where he reigns as king, and uh, he establishes then a thousand-year reign, or the millennium. Um, During that thousand years, Satan, he has bound and cast into a pit, and uh, for a thousand years, Jesus reigns on earth with his people, and uh, Satan uh, is allowed to be loosed one last time, and there's a final battle in which Satan is then cast into the lake of fire forever with the Antichrist and false prophet who have already been cast down, also with death and the, the grave, and that wraps things up. We then get to Revelation 21 and 22, Uh, where we find the new heaven and the new earth. And thank you, Jesus. He makes all things new at that point. Um, Now, what's missing from that order is the rapture. And it's because we don't necessarily get a specific 
uh, reference to the rapture uh, during the book of Revelation. You've got to go to Thessalonians and Corinthians, for example, to learn a little bit more about the rapture. I would happen to place the rapture personally. My belief is that it comes before the tribulation. So in this order, you'd have the intro, you'd have the churches, you'd have the throne room, then the rapture would occur and then comes the tribulation. Now, lots of people would disagree with me on that, but um, I'll tell you why I personally do. Um, Just by reading it, um, the churches are present there in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, You get to the throne room, and then as soon as you get into the tribulation, the church is conspicuously gone. Now, people are coming to Christ to now make up more of the church, but the the believers seem to be absent during 6 through 19, the ones that had previously been. That makes me think that they were raptured. Um, I'll be quite honest. The other reason I believe that the the rapture is before the tribulation is because I want to. Um, I'm certainly hoping that we are uh, taken away. If you're not real familiar, the rapture is when Jesus comes for his church. The second coming is when he comes with his church. And so it's a little bit of a two-part return, um, but uh, he will take his people um, either pre, mid, or post, uh, depending on your perspective. Yeah, so so much, uh, uh, so many different views totally. on all those things. <laughs> and, and some will say on the rapture that it's not even a biblical teaching at all. And yeah. they'll say, you know, you look at Jesus's Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, there's, there's no hint of it there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people say, look at First Corinthians 15, and it kind of looks like, you know, just everybody, Jesus returns once. Everybody uh, is risen from the dead or those who are alive. Uh, that's the end. It's just one yes. return, and that's the end of it. Um, and that in First Thessalonians 4, which is kind of the only place where you kind of get the rapture, that they would say, well, maybe that's not even talking about a rapture. It's perfectly consistent with just meeting the Lord in the air and, and everybody, there's one return and one end. Exactly. So and, and, and they'd say, well, that was the whole idea of a rapture is a fairly recent uh, development yes. in church yes. history. Yep. Um, sort of developed in the 1800s with, with John Darby. Yep. And prior to that, uh, there was no uh, concept of a rapture really being discussed in the history of the church. Um, and even today, it's fairly prominent among evangelicals, yeah. uh, but not really held by uh, a lot of those who are Reformed, those who are Catholic yep. and Orthodox, and, and yep. even a lot of evangelicals have a lot of you know disagreement on it. That's for sure. So it's, it's definitely a, a controversial thing. It's and, massive. Yeah. What I would say is the, the coming of the Lord, whether you take Jesus words in Matthew chapter 24, whether that is referencing the rapture or just his coming uh, again, um, it's a signless event. And we don't know. We just know he'll come like a thief in the night. And so uh, preparation for his return, again, is the key. Uh, Trying to decode and decipher what that meant or when probably isn't the issue. So that's for me a back to where this is not so much like trying to read a prophecy chart as Revelation to me is such a call just to be a disciple. And mm-hmm. uh, like we were talking about at the beginning, if you are, then we're kind of good to go. you know. Yeah. So yeah, agreed. The rapture is kind of an interesting part of this whole equation. Yeah. The rapture, the millennium, and the, that whole structure that you described and you know, whether those, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, are these just like cyclical descriptions going from the first return of Christ to the end and they keep repeating? Or yes. this, is there's a linear flow yeah. leading into the tribulation and all this? So all of this is is debated, as, as you know. Very much so. And I love what you mentioned, Ron, like the, the purpose behind some of the uh, return stories that Jesus tells. The purpose of the stories was always to tell people, hey, just be ready. Yeah. Be prepared um, for the uh, bridegroom to come for his bride. Yes. And so to always be ready to be prepared that the Lord finds us doing his work um, and uh, pleased to see him on his return. That was usually the point of those messages. Like you don't know when it's going to happen. 
Um, So let's be continuing to be obedient and uh, following the Lord and eagerly desiring for him to come. Yes, yes. Now that's good. I think it's important because this is not a salvation issue that we're talking about. This Mm -hmm. is one of many doctrinal things that have been debated. And I think what was one of the most encouraging things to me about this whole study uh, was reading Bible scholars of, of really like many generations, I mean, some 500 years back that we all respect and admire go, I can't make any sense of this book at all. <laughs> it makes me feel better. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's, it's comforting. Yeah. That's great. So the tribulation period you talked about, kind of the meat of the book, it's a point of major interest, controversy, but often fear for people. Uh, what are some important things to keep in mind about that? Yeah. So again, because it's it's um, debated about uh, whether this is figurative or literal, or uh, there's events, these these judgments that are poured out um, are cyclical or things yet to come or whatnot. Um, what I what I we've talked about a lot of them already, but what I think um, I would just draw attention to is again the grace. Um, the mercy, uh, the um, the salvation that's still taking place and available during this period, and so that that is so encouraging to me, and such a testimony of the character and nature of God that even in the midst of judgment, um, there's still He's still wooing people and winning people to Himself, and uh, so for for all of that harshness, these judgments that seem to follow one after the other, um, from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls, um, each with their own things that you can read about. And for all the things in Revelation are relatively face value. There's some weird imagery there that, again, having to do with apocalyptic literature, um, we don't know if the stuff that John saw was what exactly what God had just wanted him to see, or if based on John being a first century person, uh, couldn't put into words quite exactly what he was seeing. So what we got still superintended by God, what God intended, but it was if it, like, if we've ever had to try to go write down our dreams, I mean, it would be pretty difficult. And so, um, anyway, just keeping in mind, uh, that there are, um, massive mercies and, and the grace of God, even in the midst of the tribulation. I think we've covered enough on that one. Cool. Well, we might hear about differing views regarding Revelation. Can you walk us through some common differences in approach to interpretation? Yeah, so we're almost done with this, guys. But um, um, I think there's a handful. We already referenced one just a minute or two ago about the rapture. That's massive. Um, when you when you talk about um, uh, pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib, just so you know, if you hear that when you're listening, folks, that that is referring to this debate about whether the church, one, will be raptured at all, or if it was figurative, or if the, this is literal. Um, two, then if you happen to be pre-trib uh, or post or mid, what you're just saying is you, if you're pre, then you're, you're of the mind that Jesus raptures the church pre the tribulation, prior to the tribulation, or some people believe midway through, some people believe after, some people believe it's figurative, um, and this is uh, not an issue to begin with. Um, another differing view would have to do with the millennial reign and when the second coming is going to happen. Uh, there are those who believe that uh, um, the second coming of Christ ushers in this thousand-year reign, um, so they would be pre-millennial. And then there are those that believe that his second coming is at the end of the millennium, and that's really when he comes for real. And so um, they would be post-millennial. Then there's what's called amillennial, and uh, they would believe that this is more of a figurative thing and um, that the, the coming even can be figurative, but also the thousand-year reign can be figurative and not literal, which leads to kind of uh, what is common with the, the preterist view, which um, 
is intriguing. A lot of smart people involved in that. Um, I'm still trying to process all that that means. I have a couple of friends that are actually incredibly brilliant and who hold to this view, but they have a belief that all the prophecies in Revelation have already been fulfilled, in particular back in the first century. They cite a handful of different things reasoning for that the persecution, um, the oppression, uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, um, and uh, some of the language regarding uh, the soon that Jesus seems to make reference to. Um, and, and so in that regard, they would view an awful lot of what uh, Revelation talks about as already having been fulfilled. Um, and uh, a lot of this would then be figurative and not literal to them. So that's probably enough on the differences in views, and uh, you've probably got your own that we can add to the list. <laughs> Last, knowing what we know then about Revelation and end things, um, debated as the, we are, let's just kind of wrap it up with, with um, how should we be living in light of all of this, right, right. you know, so yes, it's debated, but God has spoken to some things. So, anything off the cuff for you guys that uh, that you think of when, um, if you were asked the question, how should we live <laughs> in light of uh, what Revelation does teach us? Yeah, I know I'm I mean, putting you on the spot. Yeah, like like you said before, uh, Jesus is King, God wins. Yeah, uh, God's wrath is going to be poured out mm-hmm. on uh, the wicked. Mm-hmm. Justice is going to be done. Yes. Um, we don't have to wonder about that. We don't have to worry about that. Uh, there's no debate about that. Yeah. Uh, that's all very clear, and that should be very encouraging to mm-hmm. us. Even if there's debate about the exact timeline and how it's all going to unfold, yeah. uh, what we can all get behind and, and agree upon is that uh, God wins. He's already won. Jesus yeah. has already conquered. Um and we can we can take comfort in knowing that that's going to be the case, and and we should live uh, with uh, both thinking about eternity and the present, and and we should live in the present, uh, wanting to bring as many people into uh, a saving relationship with Jesus as possible, because we know he's he's one. We know this is determined. This is decided, and so we should have urgency, I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. in wanting to. Um, Make sure that uh, those that we come in contact with don't have to uh, pay for uh, their sins and, and bear the wrath of God, the mm-hmm. righteous wrath of God for their sins, and that they can um, be with God forever, which is what they were created for. And, and to me, that's that's the ultimate message of Revelation. Hmm. God wins. Have urgency. Um, live in light of eternity hmm. and try to bring as many as we can into uh, saving relationship with God. I love that. I had a youth pastor that would he took the word alive and made it an acrostic, always living in view of eternity. And mm. that's uh, it's cheesy, but it's always stuck. <laughs> Trey, were you going to say something? That's good. Yeah, I I think it's also helpful to remember that Revelation, you know, was a letter written to actual you know churches and. Um, to a people living in a certain time. And it was a letter, like we said at the beginning, of hope mm-hmm. that they are going through intense persecution and mm-hmm. suffering. And uh, what a great reminder it was to them. And I think for us today that we have this hope, uh, like uh, Scripture says elsewhere, like we do not grieve like people of this world. Like we grieve differently because we have this eternal hope mm-hmm. that no matter what happens in this world, Jesus is going to return, institute his kingdom, and make a new heaven and a new earth. And so living in light of eternity, uh, we seek to bring his kingdom just like in the Lord's Prayer, like your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to the day, but we also seek to build that kingdom here and now. Mm. And uh, if you're ever feeling discouraged um, read the last couple chapters of Revelation because it is beautiful how there's no more suffering, no more pain. There's people from all nations, all languages, all ethnicities coming together to worship the Lamb, unified in the sacrifice that the Lamb has made for them and in worship of Jesus. And 
coming together to live in harmony in this new earth, new heaven that's better than anything we could even imagine or dream of. Um, and I think for me, that's what's so encouraging about Revelation is that it gives us this hope for the future. Um, and it's not a wishy-washy, well, I hope this happens. No, it's a hope grounded in the unchanging, ever trustworthy uh, Jesus and his word. And so as we uh, live today, uh, we can live uh, sacrificially as Christians uh, without fear of death, without fear of uh, mockery or winning the approval of man because we know the one um, whom is going to rule and reign. And we know that we have eternal life with him. So we're able to live our lives so sacrificially. It astounds the people around us. Um, it's because we have a hope beyond tomorrow, beyond the grave. Um, and that's why Christians should stand out from all other people as people who are full of the fruit of the Spirit, full of love, full of joy, uh, despite circumstances, peace that surpasses understanding because we know what's coming and we know how it ends. And so we're able to pour ourselves out um, for the sake of the one who poured everything out for us. Mm. Um, so for me, that's what's so encouraging about the, the book of Revelation. It's inspiring us to... Uh, live in light of eternity. That's awesome. I, I couldn't have closed it out or said it any better than you guys just did. That's a perfect uh, capstone on it. Uh, but I will leave you with two scriptures just as we wrap up our time. Second um, Peter chapter 3 says, Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Also in 1 Thessalonians, we'll close with this. So, be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that, whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. So hope any of you that are listening would find the encouragement there in Jesus and you'd encourage each other uh, to enjoy today and live it for Jesus. We love you guys. If you need more information about Connection Point, you can go to cp.news and get some questions answered there about the church. We'd love to see you on any weekend service, too. God bless. Until next time, it's Ron and Zach and Trey. Bye-bye.